Welcome to the Axis Effect podcast with our monthly guest on Global Newswatch, Mick Mulroy, former Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for the Middle East and Paramilitary Operations Officer for the CIA and current National Security and Defense Analyst for ABC News, joins us for a monthly review of global events and their impact on our lives. And here is the host of the Axis Effect podcast and CEO of Axis Entertainment, Sarah Miller. Hi, this is Sarah Miller and Marjorie DeHay with the Axis Effect. And we're excited to be here with Mick Mulroy, National Security Defense Analyst, coming back to us again in season eight. Hey, Mick, welcome back to the show. Great to be back. I know we forward to the new season. We, we admit we've missed talking to you. We took a little bit of a break, but I'm excited we're coming back and everything. Let, let's chat. I, I So much we've talked with you about in the past. God, I think it's been five seasons now we've had you on. And I know we took a little bit of a break from the news. I know 2022, when we talk about leadership, news, what's going on in the world, humanitarian effort between China, Taiwan. We've got, we're always into the Ukraine-Russian war right now. The Middle East with the Taliban, they're so much that has happened last year in a short amount of time. And now we're seeing more to Marjorie's point before we started on cybercrime, you know, what's going on down in Peru. We're just talking about so much that starting airports, FDA, all FAA shut down across the United States. People are speculating. I, I really want to get a really good deep dive with you. Is all of this related? Where are we at in 2023? Are we learning from all this this past 12, 14 months? to better security, to better our relations, going into more political stuff here in the United States with Biden. Um, we just, let's talk about what's going on in 2023, update with you on what's going on around the world and how this is going to affect us right now coming into the new year. Well, there's certainly a lot to talk about, yeah. absolutely. And I think everything you just brought up is not only what the media will be focusing on, but what the policymakers in Washington, the decision makers, the military, the intelligence community will be focused on in this 2023. Do you see any of these activities on all the security and all the issues we've had? Do you see that making the U.S. relations stronger moving in 2023? Or do you think it's going to make us more divided as a country in general because everybody's kind of forced to take sides, not take sides. So I'm not really sure where we are with anybody. I feel it should make our relationship stronger. But then I know between the Russia and Ukraine situation, we did take Ukraine's side. I mean, do you see this year severely affecting how we manage relationships with our allies for better or for worse? So it depends on how well we do, quite frankly. But if it, we do essentially what we did in 22, I think it will substantially increase the relevance, if you will, of NATO, right? The North Atlantic Treaty Organization, what I would call the most effective military alliance in history. Quite frankly, before the war in Ukraine, it was something that, you know, some people were challenging as whether it was relevant or not. Now it's more relevant than it has been since the end of the Cold War. Uh, you're going to see Finland and Sweden adjoining NATO. So NATO is expanding the exact opposite of what President Putin thought he would do by invading Ukraine. And those two countries stayed out of NATO for the entirety of the Cold War. That, that should give you an idea of just how significant NATO is becoming. And almost every country, if not every country in NATO, is increasing their defense spending to get up to the 2% that they all agreed to when they started NATO. So those alliances, I think, they will be strained, of course, because as the war goes on, 
it costs more and more money. And there'll probably be some issues like we're seeing right now over main battle tanks, for example. But altogether, if we hold together, and I think we will, it'll make the alliance much stronger. So in that context, I believe uh, we are developing stronger and stronger international relations with our key allies that we've had for so long. And I think that's really important. I kind of want to go through, like we've gone through so much global news with you over the past few seasons. I want to kind of start and kind of work away around the world with you to kind of see where we've been, what's coming out of it is going to affect us coming forward. And I want to start over in China with, with Taiwan and kind of get an update from you. And I know Marjorie has a few questions as well on that. But my main thing is, obviously, besides what's going on there, because I know we don't really think it's going to amount to anything major in Taiwan, but because they're saying we are now entering a economic depression, the economy is getting worse. I, we all have our own opinion of the economy. Some think it's stable. Some thinks it's good. You know, take the financials out of this, of the social economics of the United States future. But because they are saying we are in this downturn market and stuff, that means we need to rely more on other countries. China is, I mean, the money and the technology, since Russia is now not really in that position with us, does our situation of our economics right now affect what's going on with China? Because we do rely on them, especially when we hit a downturn economy, which we're heading into or we are in. I mean, how is that going to affect our relations with them, given the world of everything going on right now? with um, Russia and who's working with China, who's not? So I'm not an economist, but I can say, as I'm sure your audience knows, I mean, it's a, it's an international economy now. So everything's intertwined. It doesn't really do any country any good to try to economically substantially damage the other, right? Because, you know, obviously the United States buys a lot of the things that's manufactured in China and Chinese manufacture all the stuff that's, you know, right down the street here at Target or Walmart or Costco here in Montana, right? A lot of it uh, comes from China. So we both we both rely on each other. And I think that's very well understood uh, by the policymakers in both countries. And China's economy is not doing well at all. And they've had some significant challenges, even to their very authority because of the COVID lockdowns and essentially uh, unprecedented uh, protests. They ha- actually had to concede there. But how does this affect the, the security situation? Well, economies, they really do project security concerns when when something is not going right. So we have to look at that. We obviously want to contain China, who's at least on the military front, has become uh, more aggressive when it comes to developing their military. They're really not aggressive, obviously, in the sense of the Russian aggressiveness, but they certainly have tried to expand themselves. And in many of our key allies in the region, for example, Japan, have seen this. They've also seen China's inability to control North Korea. And they, who in their constitution after the end of World War II, essentially have a very restricted ability to develop their military. They're going to change all that because of what they perceive a threat to China and North Korea, so that they will start developing a sizable military. I think they've dedicated uh, billions of dollars to, to develop that. From the United States perspective, obviously, Japan is a treaty ally. That's good, because then it is just the, the United States defending Japan. It's Japan and the United States defending Japan. And we have an obligation under the the treaty that allows us to have forces in Japan to defend them. So from our perspective, when we're trying to balance all of our interests all around the world, 
having a Japan and South Korea that is more capable of defending itself is a positive. When we look at China as an economy, obviously, I think people always think it's booming. And as you just said, that it's kind of having a hard time for so many reasons. And then also, you can kind of see why it sides with Russia because energy, resources, et cetera. So in 2023 to 2025, where do you see China going as an economy and as a world power? So there's always been a relationship, you know, in the Cold War, it was the Sino-Soviet relationship in which Dr. Kissinger was so forceful in the need for the United States to try to separate them as much as possible. Probably going to never break them apart, but certainly keep them as far apart as possible. And I think you're seeing that policy now with the United States playing out again. So we would like to do everything we can to separate them. China support for Russia and Ukraine is pivotal for them, not just you know politically. And I wouldn't say it's support. It's just like not complete condemnation. And of course, that matters when it comes to the National Security Council in the UN, because they have a veto, China, that is. So does Russia. But it's also the direct military support to Russia, which is having, and I know we're not talking about Ukraine right now, but it's all connected. Russia is having a very difficult time keeping up with weapons systems, weapons and munitions. And they're relying on, you know, they're, they're buying back stuff from North Korea that they sold them 10 years ago. That's how bad it's getting. So China's been that. So where do I see China going? That's a very good question. I think they will, you know, from the national security side, Keep saber rattling about Taiwan because for them, and and we have a one China policy, but for them, any discussion that it's a separate entity, separate country is a direct challenge to their very leadership in China. We have a one China policy, but we also have the Taiwan Relations Act, which is a law in the United States in which we support Taiwan. The law itself only talks about supporting Taiwan militarily from a support side, just like we're doing from Ukraine. But President Biden's statements, at least the way I listened to them, I think most, has actually said that we would likely come to aid of Taiwan militarily with our military. That's a change in U.S. policy, at least the way I see it. Uh, maybe it's um, just part of a diplomatic um, tactic, if you will. But I do think that was meant to send a message to China that they might have to fight the U.S. military if they decide to invade Taiwan. It's already a very difficult military problem. It's uh, over 100 miles of an amphibious assault in which they have very sophisticated weapon systems. It's geographically very difficult to do as a former Marine, amphibious assault against that that island. And it would just be even more complicated, of course, if they were going against the United States. In fact, it would be suicidal in many ways. But of course, if that happens, we're nuclear powers. So like everybody's concerned when nuclear powers fight, if one loses, you know, then the chances of escalatory up and to include uh, nuclear weapons becomes a, a possibility and nobody wants to see that. I feel like everything does come down to military intelligence and armory and just across the board when it comes to defending other countries and taking sides. Let's talk a little bit about what's going on with Russia, because in the beginning, when Russia invaded Ukraine, it was a big question. Where is the allies and what's going on with China and Russia? Because every major, I mean, everything, brands, banks, everything pulled out. Russia was shut down. I mean, during pandemic wasn't helpful either, but, you know, it was a big controversial issue. Is China going to side with them or not? 
And we're now moving into this war. I mean, we have next week, we've been in this war, but we're giving more support to Ukraine. London just decided, the British decided they're going to publicly support Ukraine with more equipment. I know you said we're moving into with more planes and everything for air defense. Is, is China still taking a play in the Russian-Ukraine war? And then where are we leading into with the status of the Ukraine right now? So the last thing I've seen that when it comes to China and Ukraine is actually pulling away from Russia in the sense that they have made many statements to say that, you know, force is not the way to solve diplomacy, right? Because if you think about it, every country in the world benefits from what we call the international rules-based order, which means this is what everybody agreed to. If we're okay with stronger countries just taking over weaker countries, then it could happen to you too. Now, obviously, China is a strong country. There's a lot of countries in the world that benefit from the fact that international community doesn't accept that, right? And China does benefit from the fact that they have a very large border, and under the international rules, it shouldn't be challenged. You see what I mean? So they have they have to balance. They have a relationship with China, obviously, but this has not gone well at all for Russia. They have proven that they are not the superpower that we thought they were. China is now seeing that they're one of their key allies, is not near as strong as they thought they were. And of course, all of the international condemnation, not just for the invasion itself, but how it's been carried out, which is, you know, the, the amount of war crimes is, hasn't been seen since you know, World War II, which is why we passed all the conventions like the Hague and Geneva Convention to try to never see that again. And they violated all of it. So it's not just that they have shown themselves to be weak. They've shown that they are completely willing to use tactics against civilians that most people thought we wouldn't see again. And that's just something that I think the Chinese have tried to separate themselves with when it comes to to Russia. I saw um, on the news one of Putin was taking, literally sending prisoners out, pulling them out of prison, making them on the front lines. And one of the guys saw the execution. If you're a prisoner, but you're just like, wait, the, we, we shouldn't be in prison, but this is not what we signed up for either. And they had no choice and showing them killing like execution style, beating them down to the point to where he was so like beyond shock and so disgusted. He defected. He took his step. He ran over the border. I want to say Norway surrendered himself to the first house over the border. No issues. There was no drama. He was like, I got to turn myself in. I need asylum because as a prisoner of Russia, I can't be fighting the front line scene. They're killing their own soldiers who don't follow orders. And, you know, he's over in Norway now seeking asylum. I'm sure he'll figure out what his time is, but they're talking to him now because they're saying, is it an act of desperation or is it an act of power that Putin's making these decisions? And we're not seeing any movement. We're not seeing any ease of human life, of people being killed, of what Putin's trying to do. And I know before we start on the show, you brought up that Ukraine is trying to pull it away from the main cities down at Crimea as a safer way to overcome and win it, or is it just more of a kind of a hold to save their lives and they stop beating down on the cities and ruining their economy? Or is it a little bit of both? So, of course, when it started, which is almost a year ago, right, about February, most analysts thought it'd be over in three weeks and Russia would control the whole country. That obviously didn't happen. And not only didn't it happen, but the, the, the initial push in, the Ukrainians have taken back about 50% of the territory that the Russians initially occupied. And quite frankly, 
right now, they'd probably be taking back more territory if they could get the type of weapon systems uh, that they need. And the recent announcement of that United States, about $2.5 billion, maybe a little more, second biggest yet, is going to include many of those type of weapons. So the Stryker infantry fighting vehicle, the Bradley fighting vehicle, these are tank killers. They're not tanks, but they can kill a tank. And you could put infantry troops in them, and they're more protected as they try to close with the Russian forces. So there's a lot more that goes into that, but those are two of the key things that I would bring up from the latest package. And then to your point on Crimea, the Russians have, have occupied that peninsula since 2014. They never thought it would be challenged. The Ukrainians can legitimately challenge their presence in, in Crimea. And if they do, it would give them much better leverage if we ever get in any kind of peace negotiations. Because then the Russians will be talking about how they preserve some of their territory in Crimea instead of taking over Kiev, for example. So it kind of shifts the whole discussion away from Ukraine proper, if you will. It's not how they would refer to it. But the other than the, the peninsula of Crimea, down to Crimea. And it would be a very, very difficult military problem for the Ukrainians. But I mean, they've been underestimated the entire time. So if they keep getting these more and more advanced systems, the tank is going to be the next big discussion. There's already some countries like the UK that is introducing their main battle tanks. But those will allow them to do more and more offensive campaigns against the Russians in the east and the south, and then all the way down to include the peninsula of Crimea. You know, we see it like, because you're talking about like our support in the U.S. People are often saying we're the divided states of America. And this particular issue has come up a lot in what our support is for other countries. With shifts in the House, shifts in the Senate, and a presidential election coming up next year, we're fighting for democracy, but then people are like, well, we've got our own problems. So where do you see the U.S. support in terms of financing in the next two years? And where do you see the hiccups coming along? And that's a question I did a uh, like a Ukrainian panel here at the local high school. And that question came up quite a bit. It's a legitimate question. I mean, we obviously, you know, I don't know, what, $31 trillion in debt or whatever we are, which I don't just dismiss. I mean, I don't know how one nation can be that much in debt, but I understand the issues there. I would say this. We spent so far the equivalent of about 5% of our annual defense budget, basically like an aircraft carrier. The Ukrainians have taken that and destroyed 50% of Russia's combat power, 50. We're talking over 111,000 dead soldiers now, Russian soldiers. So if you just look at it from the pure national security interest of the United States, it has been a bargain. We don't have our soldiers, sailors, airmen, Marines, fighting and dying over there. The Ukrainians are because it's Ukraine. I mean, we're not asking to do something they wouldn't do, but we're giving them the ability to win. And in the process, they take in one of our most substantial adversaries, probably the most dangerous right? And reduce them substantially. So it's not just charity. Just like President Zelensky said when he came and addressed Congress, this isn't charity. We are fighting our common enemy and NATO's common enemy, and they're winning. So it is a good investment on the national security side. I would hope that people would look at that that way and not just look at it as, you know, well, you're giving money to them as if it was some kind of just giveaway. It's not a giveaway. It's kind of like you look at it this way. If if your neighbor's house was on fire, well, just morally, you would help you go help your neighbor put out the fire, right? But it's not just morals. 
It's also your own interest because if, if his house or her house keeps burning, yours could be next. So there's also that aspect of it too. They have really put out the fire of Russian aggression or at least tamped it down quite a bit based on the support they've gotten from the United States and NATO. And I want to let you finish your question on this before we pivot over and segue into our kind of our next area on the Middle East. So I want to let you make sure you get your question in on this. I was just going to say that's such a great explanation because I don't think people always get the real purpose of that. So excellent explanation. I'm going to pass back to Sarah. Well, okay, because I'm going to go back to on that one, but I, I feel like that's like Bali. There's a huge, huge place in Bali that has been built a hotel, like a WeWork open space only for the Russians and the Ukraines. There's no divided. There's no he says, she said. There's no, it's just one, we're all humans. We're all here to survive and be, have a happy life to help each other. And there's more and more of these places popping up throughout Europe and around the world that are not just for Russians, not just for Ukraines, but they're combining for people to go to as a refuge who understand what each other's going through. And I feel like to Marjorie's point, it was a brilliant explanation, making I think we all agree, you know, we're there to help our neighbors. Like you said, we have to, you just don't know, but I'm seeing more and more of these places open up that have that exact same mentality as what you're talking about. We're here to help our neighbors and we're bringing it to hard conversation if you're Russian in front of a Ukrainian or vice versa, but they're encouraging the conversations because they're now leaving the situations and living side by side in these other areas. And I've seen more and more of that in the past six to nine months than we have this whole thing started, which is good to see. But I, I want to pivot a little bit because you guys are talking, we're all talking about the financial, social economics. We're in a political year coming up all the financials. We are so in debt. It's insane that we're still moving in the right directions we are and the market's still up and down. Is the concern that you have with intelligence and with the military, the emphasis has been so strong with China, with Russia, Ukraine, fighting that area. We pulled out of, was it last, God, when we Biden pulled the Taliban out? I know we spoke with you right when all this was happening, when you were fighting to get your partners out, your friends, your family, your other associates out in the military. Are we concerned or is there any concern or intelligence that we're pushing so much to other areas that we've kind of overlooked, which is a serious situation with the Taliban in the Middle East? Because we know that two weeks ago, a week and a half ago, every airport in the United States had to shut down. There was no air tower control, no traffic. There was a glitch in the system. And now it's a matter of, oh, the Russians, the Chinese. But I feel like we're so focused time, money, intelligence on Russia. We haven't really talked about where our biggest threat is, which is the Taliban and terrorism coming out of the Middle East. I mean, is that something that, and I want to say you're comfortable because that's under control, but is that an issue that we've kind of overlooked or that we're just still keeping kind of a pulse on just for safety? So I think it absolutely is still an issue that we should be concerned about. When it comes to Afghanistan, one of the negatives that came out of the full pullout is we don't really know what's going on over there. It's very hard to collect intelligence in a place where you have zero presence on the ground. I mean, there's still some ways to do it, but compared to what we had before, to what we have now, it's it's really no comparison. So ISIS and I and uh, Lobo Institute, uh, the group I'm part of, we do advise the State Department on Afghanistan. And what we've seen and I know the world hasn't focused on it much because of the war in Ukraine. It's absolutely abhorrent. What they've done to women's rights in Afghanistan is worse than it was when we went there 
after 9-11. I mean, it's literally, they can't, they're, they're entirely prisoners in their own house. They can't leave their house without a man that's directly related to them. They still get harassed. They have to wear certain things at all times. They're not allowed to go to any place, essentially, that makes them a fully functional adult. They can't go to work. They can't go to school. They can't teach at school. They can't do any of that stuff. And that's just the human rights side, which is just abysmal. All the things that they said that they promised during the negotiations they wouldn't do, they did times 10. And then, of course, it's now the Taliban fighting what they call ISIS Khorasan. And ISIS Khorasan is gaining in strength. And then you've got Al-Qaeda that's also there, their senior leader. So you have three terrorist groups that, you know, the best we could hope is they just fight each other. But obviously, if they're a terrorist organization, they have to do more and fight each other, they have to plot and execute attacks against their number one enemy, which is the West, the United States. So hopefully, you know, we won't see a major attack come out of Afghanistan, but we don't know. And we really don't have any way to, in my opinion, to, to be able to prevent it. And then you also have ISIS, you know, for your audience, ISIS started in Iraq, right? It was Al-Qaeda in Iraq that turned into ISIS. It spread, then it became, you know, in the Levant, which is you know, the part of the Middle East on the Mediterranean. Well, now it's all through, like it is in at least 30 countries, right? I started in one, now it's in 30. And so from Somalia all the way over to the West Coast of Africa, I think there's a big concern that we have almost no idea what's going on there. And we might not know until, you know, something, there's an attack in Paris or London, New York or Washington. And then everybody will go from talking about Ukraine and China and North Korea and Iran. Back to the to, Middle East again. And, and terrorism, in, because yeah. if you attack us, you know, the way the United States rolls, uh, we're coming after you, and yeah. then we focus on you. Since we've talked about this, because I know we focused our attention in news elsewhere in the world, have you been able to get more Americans, more of your troops out of there? Because I know when they when um, we pulled out of Afghanistan, the Taliban did that call to tell ISIS and extremists everywhere in the world, come home, you're safe here. And now, I mean, they were kind of pulling them back in for that plot. And I know it was harder to get anybody out past like six or seven o'clock PM within like four or five days later when it was shut down. Have you had some intel on the safety of these people who are trying to get out but got trapped? Or have we made any covert attempts to actually keep getting some of these Americans out? So there's I don't know exactly what's happening on the on the US government, you know, intelligence community side. I couldn't tell you if I did, but I don't. But I do know the volunteer groups because I've I'm, I'm part of a lot of volunteer groups. And quite frankly, a lot of them have a hard time with funding now because people have moved on and it's become exceedingly difficult to get people who are still trapped there out. And it isn't just the, the people who fought alongside us. It's also people who just helped American NGOs or Western NGOs do things just to help the, the Afghan people, their target. So, you know, a doctor or a nurse who assisted an NGO of France to help immunize kids is now a target by the Taliban because they work with the Western group. So it's spread from, you know, people who actually fought the Taliban to people who were just trying to do good. Yeah, I think the people. people who fought the Taliban were doing good, but were just, just do-gooders and they're getting tracked down. And there's another big issue with the NGOs. The Taliban won't let any female Afghans work for the NGOs. So the NGOs are shutting down. Why? Because that's most of the people who work for the NGOs in, in Afghanistan are Afghan women. So the Taliban is not only doing, they're doing things very much against the interests of the Afghan people, not just the, you know, half the population, the female population, but all of them. They have really 
based on their draconian rules, really prevented Afghan people from getting that that a lot of these NGOs would are trying to. Yeah. Like, like talking about intelligence, and I don't know if this is, I mean, I just, and I would love to just get your feedback and input. I know this is not kind of what you've been focused on. We did a really good podcast. We're talking about chat RPT. You know, there's a whole thing with the crypto where you know, we all know that the dark web was built for exchange of information and then it got out of hand and the whole crypto and the Bitcoin. So it's, you know, when they're negotiating with terrorists because it's a digital currency. Is there any concerns? With like the chat RPT, with crypto, Bitcoin, the digital coin, is there any surges? Because the technology is getting smarter now because chat RPT is all over the place. There's AI ring codes now that's automatic. Yeah, crypto tank, Bitcoin's back on the rise, but we've seen all of the major people being called off to prison, indictments and stuff for offshore money. That's just billions of dollars that's not traceable. Is any of this a concern on the intelligence level of how far that could go, how damaging, and if that could be used either against us uh, or in our favor, or can we use it to keep our country and the allies more protected? Yeah. So just to kind of break them down when it comes to the concern. So if you look at artificial intelligence and the advancements it's making, specifically, but not always, but uh, paired with automated war machines, what people are calling it is pretty interesting term, the post-heroic era, in the sense that before, if a nation decided to go to war, they were going to send their young people, primarily men, but now in the United States, men and women, to war and risk their lives and lose their lives. You had literal skin in the game, and you had to make that determination, and you had to get people that are willing to go fight for your political objectives. As we get into a position where more and more and it's starting, you know, aerial drones, but now you're getting ground drones. And are you going to see, you know, basically robots fighting? And I answer is yes. I mean, it is. It's that the decision has been made and we're moving out with that. So then you don't have, that's why they call it post-heroic, right? You have a machine that doesn't have any care about whether it lives or dies. It's programmed to do what you want it to do. And at first, the most advanced countries are going to have a substantial advantage, right? We're, we're sending robots, you're sending soldiers. Uh, but eventually, like everything, technology catches up. Then you pair that with artificial intelligence. And the big concern on the defense side is artificial intelligence would think and make decisions way faster in theory than, than humans would, right? So when do you turn, if you're in at a battle, when do you turn the decision-making over to an artificially-based intelligence so that you can outthink your enemy? And how do you control it? Right, you get into the whole like Terminator scenario and all that stuff. When does it Skynet <laughs> self-realization? I mean, it's it's an interesting movie. But now, when people talk about it, you say Skynet. Even the most sophisticated people, when it comes to artificial intelligence, go, "Oh yeah, I mean, that's an issue, right?" When do we turn over decisions on war, which has got to be the most significant when it comes to consequences against humanity? You know, you have an artificial intelligence-based entity making decisions, and then if you put that onto the automated war machines that we have, right? So that's a, that's an issue that we're going to have to probably grapple with first because of most of the technological advantage or advancements come out of the United States. So that's one. And then the crypto, I think, you know, I'm no expert on that either, but the biggest thing from the intelligence perspective is it's very difficult to trace. You already mentioned it. Who, you know, that's the whole intent, right? Yeah. Is to give you freedom. Well, who wants freedom? Well, generally drug dealers and international arms dealers and, and spies, right? There's anything wrong with spies, but you get my point. It's people who yeah. have something to hide, 
right? So I imagine that when it comes to taxes and all that stuff, it causes endless amounts of headaches for the IRS and all that kind of stuff. But that is, from my understanding, that is the that is the issue for the intelligence community when it comes to crypto. It's who's who and how are they exchanging funds, right? To potentially do a terrorist attack or a cyber attack or something like that. I feel like with AI and with like chat RPT, some of this stuff, like you said, we're taking technical terms. It's taking human error out of the equation, but it's also taking human accountability out of the equation because you're relying on casualties of war and calculations based on it. You know, you look at how advanced AI is, and Margie will correct me if I'm wrong, but a lot of the chat RPT stuff is based on AI when it comes to what you're looking for in information that it's not arguable. And nobody's going to argue the point because it's chat RPT, it's AI. But I feel like there's such a distinct gray underground area of transferring of information intelligence that humans, we can't tap in, we can't break in blockchain. We, for your point, we don't have any eyes and ears on the ground to be safe. This makes it harder, easier for them, harder, I think, for the United States and intelligence in general to stay on top of and figure out what's really going on because it's just going to be very hard to break those chains. Marge and I tried to break break it the other day on a podcast with some of our security guys. And if we're taking any human accountability out of decision makings, relying on machines, they're just going to get smarter. It comes down to, you know, we have the WhatsApp, we have all these encrypted sources. I mean, it's just, I think what the scary part is how much more advanced that could be that you, central intelligence, CIA, military, won't, won't even have access to. So it's almost like we're blindsided with another year or two when things happen because we just have no way to know, no way to tap into track where the chatter is anymore. And anybody can right. pay for it with Bitcoin and crypto. And we all know the global market or the crypto is, it's still a lot of money being pushed in underground. So I feel like we've, as the United States, is like, like not the extreme, but I feel like we have lost control of being one of the strongest countries in the United States or in the um, world and our nation's bad because our technology is advanced and we don't have the control over what we needed to stay safe up until this point. Yeah, that's that's going to be a concern of the intelligence committee for sure going ahead because as this technology advances, it's not just going to be the property of the United States, right? There's all sorts of companies around the world who may not have the same restrictions ethically, legally, et cetera. Those are the ones we should be most concerned about. And you mentioned the grid of the United States. From talking to people who are homeland security experts, I did most of my career overseas, we developed most of the infrastructure at the earliest stages of computers, where the idea of some hacking and stuff like that just didn't exist. So they're at a very basic level, which makes them very vulnerable to cyber attacks because they didn't have the type of defenses that we would now do for sure. Right. So, and this could be super critical when it comes to if Russia, for example, one of the things, and I don't know if you saw this, the story on the Russian spy ship off the coast of Hawaii. One of the concerns they have is like the international fiber optic cable, which transfers, I read about 80% of the information across the world, economic information, intelligence, diplomatic. I mean, it's completely vulnerable to a country who knows how to do any underwater sabotage. Bam. Right. Because when they put it in, they, who would destroy? everybody's communications. Well, a country who was pushed to the edge of losing a war, a war. So that, I mean, and that would be the same for cyber. You could say, well, why would they launch a cyber attack against Wall Street? Well, because they're going down and they want everybody to go down with them. You know, so there's all sorts of things that we're vulnerable to that wouldn't be like a conventional attack. 
but would have substantial consequences to the security of the United States and the economy of not just the United States, the world. Yeah. You know, I read this interesting article and it kind of goes along with that is how we're fighting this invisible world. Like we don't even know who the enemy is when you have these ransomwares, when you have these cyber attacks, and thus it makes it so much harder to figure out because we're under attack. Like they took LA school district, they took all their information, they've taken down energy grids. And then when you look at the FAA going down for an hour, the billions of dollars lost, the, you know, important flights missed, you know, all those things. It just seems like that would be the way to get to the U.S. It seems like we're very vulnerable, as you say, because of these older systems. So if you look at all of that in one perspective, what do you think people in general have to do? And what do you think the U.S. has to do to really counteract these potential cyber attacks, ransomware attacks? So, of course, the the FBI, Home Department of Homeland Security, always pushes companies to get the most sophisticated defenses. But unlike most of our adversaries, our government doesn't control our private industry, right? They don't do it. They don't do it. There's nothing the, the U.S. government, to my knowledge, could do to force them to do it. So a lot of the U.S. role is as an advisor to these companies, but not as a, you know, a dictator, if you will. So the first thing companies, and you know, a lot of these you know, like it's a school district. Why would anybody attack us? Well, because you're vulnerable. If you're the most vulnerable out there and you don't want all your records kept and erased, you'll pay money, right? So I guess it's education would be the biggest thing is that medical records, all the stuff that would really be substantial, they likely wouldn't go after a big hospital chain that obviously spent a lot. I mean, just to use the medical records as an example, that spent a lot of money to protect it. They'll probably find some small hospitals. And then they just find which ones don't have the defense. So I think most cyber experts would say education and really, really pushing companies to spend the money I'm sure they don't want to do, but to defend themselves. Because this isn't going to go away. As long as there's an ability to exploit these companies for financial gain, um, there's people around the world that can do it. And they'll sit comfortably in places like Russia, who is totally fine with them doing it. And there's no way to access these people. Right. Unless we did an invasion, we're not going to do that. So a lot of these people feel completely safe to try whatever they want, and they can do it because the world's so interconnected now. Let me ask you a question before you wrap up here. I know we've talked about all this. We're, I feel like we're blinded with the intelligence. We're like we're literally with the technology, with the cyber crime, what's going on. We have such a huge blind spot here in the United States more than ever. And going into this next election year, I think is good, better, and different. It's not going to be any smoother than the last one we have. Do you feel because we are kind of blinded with intelligence, with all this is past year more than ever, that it's going to rise in the um, domestic extremists here within the United States as like an opera? Hey, we, we're no longer relying on the Taliban. Everything is so the way things are. Do you think it's more of a domestic terrorism thing that we're going to start looking at, especially with election year coming up? Or do you think that's stronger or just has kind of quieted down since the last time it came out? Because I have not seen any news on domestic extremists in a while. And I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. So I wouldn't take not seeing anything about it to mean that it might have, to my understanding, it has increased. And the FBI spends quite a bit of time focusing on the size and scope of domestic extremists which exists on both sides of the aisle. The chatter that I've seen in the, in the small groups that I'm involved with that are on the outside, but former 
officials that now advise the government in a civilian or private sector's capacity is that it's on the increase, right? Some of it's spurned by Russian propaganda, quite frankly. It's easy to get on social media and spread lies. They'll plant the seed and then other people will take it and run with it and turn it into something that's really toxic and quite frankly dangerous. So you got some of that. You got some that's just organically grown. And it's very unfortunate. It has on both sides of the aisle. From the research I've seen, obviously the right side, and I mean far right, is very well armed. But now the left side realizes that the right side is very well armed. And now they're being armed. So we have two groups, and I mean extremists. I don't mean like conventional right and left. We probably should come up with different terms to mean, you know, way out there. Like, But when you have two groups who's, who both think that the, they were headed toward a civil war of which they're primarily causing, and now they're both armed, you got a problem, right? So I think we're, there's a lot of concern, to your point, Sarah, going into elections where there's going to be winners and there's going to be losers. It's just the way democracy works, that the ones that won't accept the loss might turn to something else. And that something else is outside of democracy, right? The part of democracy is accepting that if you didn't have the right message to get elected, you should probably go figure out what the right message is and build your, and I'm a completely non-political person, but what I'm saying is I'm American and I believe in democracy and the democratic process. So what they're concerned about is people who are completely unwilling to accept if they lose. And instead of potentially figuring out how to increase the size of their tent, so to speak. They simply go down conspiracy theories and blame some kind of, you know, malicious activity for their loss. Yes. And that that creates, if you believe it, then you think you're justified in trying to use force. So I know we got to wrap up here. I've got a last question actually that I want to spend two minutes on with getting both of your opinions on this. I know social media was heavily used Hence why Trump was booed off of Twitter, the whole election scandal, everything. Do you guys feel in just personal opinion, you know, with Elon taking over Twitter, now he's back to what if I want to keep it? He wants to open it up, change it. Do you feel this progression of social media, Elon taking over Twitter, which was a big issue when he was they started banning people before he moved in? Do you think that is, I mean, where is your opinion on that and how that? may or may not affect the election year as well as our daily, like we're talking about financial, social economics, cyber attacks, Marjorie. I mean, Twitter was a big tool for that. How do you guys feel about how Twitter is playing out right now, how that's affecting what we're going to be doing in 2023? I'll go first because what I think about social media is if you have a completely neutral platform, there should be like really no business in their monitoring. The problem is there is no really truly neutral platform. There's always going to be people interjecting like this is bad, this is bad. And, you know, and there's obviously things that are bad and should not be on social media and those you get. But opinions and people's opinions, when you start monitoring that, I think that's kind of what started happening is they say, these opinions are good. These opinions are bad. And then you don't get that free exchange of information. So I think it was over monitoring towards a particular political party or political side has caused a lot of those issues. Yeah. So I'd start by agreeing with Marjorie on that. And I would acknowledge that this is, this is a difficult question, right? So you want to have people have the ability to express their opinions, even if it's contrary to yours. That's the, it's the United States, freedom of speech. These are private companies, though. 
And so just like you don't have to allow somebody to stand in your house and say, well, all right, business, they do have the ability to restrict speech. It's their platform. But it is now, it's almost like the old, you know, common space in town, the common, you know, so, but it is a private company. So it is, it is complicated. I don't know the exact answers, but I certainly think anybody that advocates violence, which is a crime, or any crimes should be banned off of any social media. And then you get into the touchy things of just people who can be offensive. Being offensive isn't necessarily a crime. And you're free to disagree or turn the channel. But then you also end up with, you know, in the media, and I'm in it, or at least I'm an analyst in it, you end up, people just choose their media based on their political position. And all it does is just reinforce their political position without ever any injection from the other side for whether you're on whatever side you want to go, oh, wait, I never even heard that perspective because everybody I listen to is saying what I think. So if social media ends up like that, so if people, if there starts to be social media, it's completely associated with your political positions, we're just going to end up with the same thing. We're a very polarized country of which neither side listens to the other or even engages with the other, right? So no easy answers there, yeah. but it's certainly an issue. And it does spread completely false information. And a lot of that is spread by our adversaries, China and Russia, for example. It's easy for them to manipulate the American population because that's such a free country, something that neither of those countries would allow anything close to. It can happen. There's a news source out of Russia that was on Instagram a lot, RPG Russian program group, and they were banned as soon as um, the Russians as soon as Putin shut down news, newspapers, everything, they went off the air. They just recently came back on. I don't know if they left Russia to, you know, and continued on elsewhere where they had the freedom, but they're not taking anybody's side, which is interesting. They are factual of what's going on, of humanitarian efforts, of what's right and people's right to live happily. So it's interesting that they've come back on the air, but my, you know, from crypto, I've seen this a lot where, you know, people are using social to entice, to excite others. I mean, you're saying we all listen to the news that we listen to. So we don't really have another opinion, but we're also aggravated. And we're also excited by what we're seeing. That's not our opinion. That gives us a reason. I call them cyber bullies because they're cowards. They want to entice. They want to get people all riled up without showing their face because they could do it privately. And I just feel like the social media platform has a huge impact, whether it's financially, just to pick up, I know SEC nailed Kim Kardashian. You use social media to entice to move the market. There's a million dollars. Once they did that, they were pissed. They realized, wait, now we got 178 million, 23 billion, 64 billion here, people. We should have gone after her harder, but they're realizing the power of social is actually being extremely disruptive and destructive politically and everything. I mean, it's, it is a hard question because we, I mean, being in PR, we all have the freedom of speech to say what we want. We have public platforms to tell a story, to help navigate and narrate our leadership. But it's starting to get very, very dicey. It's a very gray area now, what you're reading, what you're posting. And I agree with what you're saying, Margie. We can't tell everybody that what you can and cannot say because we don't like it. Here's what's going to be posted, what's not. But that almost creates more damage because then you don't get make that other side. You have a right to an opinion. My whole thing is, you all have a right to an opinion. That's not right, wrong, or different. It's just your opinion that's influenced by the media and those conversations around you. I understand that. But where my issue is, you should have the right of freedom of speech and have an opinion without judgment. And because of that last 
to words without judgment, which doesn't exist, I think that's going to start fueling more and more problems we're going to have through election year, through other cyber crimes and stuff. Because now it's just like kind of like the wild, wild west. And there's no way to regulate it without paying the fees and pissing off more people because we can't regulate what you're saying. Like we, since eight seasons, we've always been very clear. I've been clear. I'm not filtering. I mean, unless there's a dog barking or we're too, we're cursing too much, or we said something we shouldn't have. We don't filter our podcast. There is no filter. We're a podcast. I've had a few people, news people say, hey, you talked about a subject that we didn't feel, but I'm a PR firm. Freedom of speech is what we do. It is unfiltered, but we're not using anything to excite or to prevent or to manipulate anybody's opinion. We're just talking about both sides of everything with every guest we have on. So we all, I mean, when we get off these podcasts and Marjorie talk about this, we learn more every time we're on a podcast because we have guests like you on, especially you who is on every month with us. So we're getting a different perspective, different intelligence. We're like, you know what? My opinion was wrong. I heard what Mick said, or I heard what Marjorie said. And I talked to Marjorie all the time where, you know what? I'm going to think differently because it's not judgment. I may not have agreed, but I get where they're coming from. And I feel like social media is almost putting us back into where we were when we didn't have a right to voice our opinion. So I do like social media. It is a tough question to answer, but I feel like it's being more damaging as time goes on than helping us express our opinions and what's right in the world. But I mean, I don't know. It is what it is. But in the meantime, it was so good to have you back on. I'm excited we're kicking off season eight with you in a few weeks. It's good to get you back on every month. You know, we'll talk to you in a month. You'll keep us posted. But I did love having you on and kind of giving us how to kick off 2023 because I think we've all seen a lot in a short amount of time where there's still some unclarity of really where our safety is in the world. So I do appreciate you coming back on the show. You're welcome. Look forward to the next season. Good seeing you guys. It was good having you on, Mick. Sarah Miller and Marjorie DeHay with Mick Mulroy with Axis Effect. And we'll see everybody next month. Thank you for joining us for the Axis Effect podcast. To find more podcasts or to learn more about our host and guests, please visit theaxiseffect.com. Thank you for joining us for this special report. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.